Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. As a person in long-term recovery, I can tell you that a lot of times we tend to focus on the substance in substance use disorder. Oh, it's meth, it's opioids, it's heroin, it's whatever. There's so much focus on the substance that I think sometimes we don't see it as what some of us refer to as slow-motion suicide. It really is self-destruction. And so that's why I think this week's guest, I, I talked to her really as one person in long-term recovery to the other about this as a health disorder, about sort of disordered using of these things, but also we speak what has been called the language of the heart. You know, I'm picking up what she's putting down and, and we understand one another. But I think that people who might misunderstand addiction, recovery, rehabilitation, detox, the whole nine yards, particularly in this age when there's so many deaths um, from alcohol use disorder, alcohol addiction, and also from other substances, that this is a really timely, timely topic particularly when we start to look at it as just a, a plain old brokenness of spirit from a woman who lost her husband to suicide and who has um, addiction all over her family, as I do. It's a very meaningful conversation this week. I'm glad you're here. We all want boundaries. We all want structure, or at least we crave it, even if we don't want it. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to Man Listening. I'm Stuart Watson. This week, Marcia Stone was introduced to me by a mutual friend and who's a little bit intimidating in that A, very smart, B, very accomplished, C, very beautiful. Am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to say that? Am I gonna get canceled? Just just listen. I mean, we talked, we weren't face to face. It wasn't, it, and it was very moving. It was very moving. She was able to help me. She's got a lot to say, Marcia Stone. Where were you born? I was born in Moultrie, Georgia. I used to joke and say, I think I'm somehow related to everybody in Moultrie, Georgia, in some form or fashion. It's just kind of the way I grew up in a small town, you know, surrounded by lots of family and and lots of close friends that my family had had for a long time. What number were you in the birth order? I'm an only child. And my mom, as I said, she had a difficult pregnancy. She'd had um, a real hard time having a baby. And so my mom and dad were high school sweethearts and they got married right out of high school. And they had me about seven years later, and then three years later, they got a divorce. So 
I'm an only child um, of those two. They both went on to remarry, but. Yeah. Now, when you were a little girl, your mom would have said, Marsha was so what when you were real little? Real little. Marsha is so inquisitive. Hmm. Always asking questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And did you keep asking questions? Absolutely. One of the things I've said about, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and being successful in business is I'll never turn down a meeting because I always find that the path forward is somehow brought about by conversations that I wasn't even expecting to have. But, you know, if, if someone contacts me and says, you know, I'm thinking about um, starting, you know, a treatment center that's going to treat only first responders. Would you be willing to have a conversation with me about that? The answer is always yes, because what I have discovered in recovery and in business and just kind of being on this planet for a little while is that I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. And the way that I'm always pushed to grow and change and to learn new things is by having conversations with people that know more about a subject than I do. And I'm just always, I've, I, I have a teachable spirit, and I think that that has really served me well in life. What was your first entrepreneurial venture? I think some people might not consider this, you know, my first sort of foray into being an entrepreneur. But when I was in high school and in college, I was one of those kids that was really busy. And I was on lots of committees. I joined lots of clubs. I went on lots of school you know, trips, even trips abroad and stuff like that. Um, I was a page at the Capitol in Atlanta one summer and um, working with the legislature and everything. And I just always really enjoyed being around people that were highly functioning individuals. And I remember I joined a debate team and I won this debate contest when I was in school. And that was the thing that really, that memory and that experience spurred me on to go to law school. I did not open a business for myself until I was um, in my early 30s, about 30. I always had this idea that if I was in community with the right people, that the right opportunities would always show themselves. And so even though I was working for the district attorney's office or I was working for, you know, I opened my own law firm, et cetera, those were businesses, but I did not open my own business until I got into the treatment industry. But looking back, I can see that I was always, you know, out sort of on the outside looking in because I love to have, um, fresh ideas, new ways of looking at things, um, to be really sort of out of the box thinking as far as solutions. And really for me, that is the lifeline of an entrepreneur is to be able to be a wave spotter in some ways and be able to create whatever the need is that you're perceiving, you know, in, in your world, in your universe. What spoke to you about law school? I was a single mom. I got married really young. And I had three kids by the time I was 24 and my husband and I um, separated. And so I was looking around at my life and I had these three little kids to support. And I only had gone to my sophomore year in college. And I just had this, you know, innate knowing that if I was going to be successful as a mom, if I was going to be able to take care of my children in the way that I was taken care of, I had to get into some type of um, career that was going to offer me an opportunity to earn meaningful money. 
And then memory came back to me of how much I had enjoyed being in the legislature and, you know, in all those debates and preparing for those, um, you know, type of sort of almost evidentiary proceedings that they would have. And I just thought maybe I might have, you know, a natural ability to do that. I knew that I was a good communicator. I knew that I um, was well-written. I knew that, you know, I could articulate my points very well. And so it just kind of made sense that that would be the first step. I didn't know if I was going to end up practicing law. I kind of did for, you know, the first 10 years. But always in the back of my mind, I sort of had the feeling that, this was going to be a stepping stone to whatever it was that was really going to set my heart on fire. That's what I always say to people when they want to get a job. You know, I always say, there's lots of things to do in this company. What sets your heart on fire? And, and that I was on the path to figuring out what that was even, you know, 20 years ago. Starting your own firm, what set your heart on fire? There are a lot of different kinds of law. What, what really spoke to you? What really spoke to me was the ability to go in and represent people that were good people that did not have the education or the ability to articulate for themselves what their position was. I've always been someone who fights for the underdog and anyone who knows me will tell you I hate a bully. And so to be able to sort of stand in the gap for people and help them that really spoke to me. So because of that, I ended up taking, I was a trial lawyer. Um, I did some real estate, but that was just a little side thing. So I did a lot of criminal defense. I did a lot of family law. And this was in the Asheville in the mountains of North Carolina um, in the mid 2005, six stage. And I sort of developed a little niche for myself of representing fathers in custody proceedings because back then and, and I'm sure to some extent today you know it's just customary you know for the mom to get custody and I just had such a close relationship with you know my dad growing up and my grandparents even after my parents were divorced that I felt like it was you know a meaningful cause to be able to help children um, to have access to their entire family, specifically fathers that deserve to have 50% custody, but um, were afraid or had lawyers that were afraid to ask for that for them. What do good dads bring to a child, girl or boy? The word that came to my mind, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question was consistency. My dad is now sober and in recovery and lives here in Austin, and, and we have a good relationship today. But growing up, I can see that any time that he was inconsistent with me, that was the part that would, that would break a little kid's heart. You know, if you think your dad's coming over to pick you up Friday afternoon at five o'clock, and for one reason or another, he doesn't or can't show up, a kid internalizes that as, what did I do wrong? Something's wrong with me. And in you know, complete contrast to that, my current husband that I've been married to for 20 years this year raised my older three kids um, because their dad struggled with substance abuse and was never really able to get it together. And he ultimately um, passed away by suicide. But I've had many conversations with my kids. I've had many conversations with other people that are in recovery that have sort of, you know, some parent wound going on. And I think that the thing that Jonathan did really right with my kids, even being a stepdad, 
is he provided consistency because we all want boundaries. We all want structure, or at least we crave it, even if we don't want it. How old were you when your dad got sober? Well, the first time I sent my dad to treatment was in 2005, and he now has three years sober, so I guess he finally got sober at 72. So the whole time you were growing up, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he was still drinking. He was drinking, but you know, um, I lived part-time with him and part-time with my mom, and I never remember seeing him intoxicated. I never remember feeling like he was acting a certain way because of alcohol. I never felt that. Um, but he did go out a lot and he did have, you know, lots of um, girlfriends and he did end up um, really suffering some consequences with his career because of his drinking. But, you know, I think the way that happened is, and, and one of the things I say about my own recovery is my family has been riddled for generations with alcoholism and addiction and, you know, frankly, you know, transgenerational trauma. I don't know if that's a word, but, you know, long, long. It's absolutely a word. Yeah, transgenerational. I like that. Um, and uh, no one ever talked about it, you know, in our family. And so when I moved home after law school and I started really struggling with my own drinking, I didn't have any frame of reference with what you do when you're struggling with alcohol. And so I spent, the, you know, from 2002 to 2008 in and out of treatment centers and trying my best to get sober. Um, and, and it finally clicked, you know, May 6, 2008 is my sobriety date and it finally clicked. But as much as that was painful for my children, my oldest three kids are now in recovery. And what they have said to me that makes all the difference in the world is this. Mom, we knew that you struggled and we were angry or we were sad, but we saw you never give up. So when we found ourselves struggling with this very same thing, you had set the example for us of, you know, how to ask for help. And so because my alcoholism was so, you know, public and out loud, what started off as feeling like a moral failure and being presented to be as a moral failure turned out to be the very best thing that could happen because my children, through my struggles, had the language to ask for help, you know, generation, I mean, uh, decades uh, before I did in their own life. And I'm just saying that because it's a strange juxta juxtaposition that my dad struggled, but I never knew it. And then I struggled and everybody knew it, whether they wanted to or not. But I would prefer the latter because of the healing and, you know, the ripple effect that that has had. How was it public and out loud? Well, when I went home after law school, I was the first female assistant district attorney in the Southern Judicial District in my hometown. And, you know, this was 1999, was very much, you know, the Southern old boys country club scene. And they welcomed me into that fraternity. I'll call it a fraternity. That's what it was. Um, with open arms and, and I started off having, you know, a good career and some success, but you know, alcoholism, at least in my experience, if it's not arrested, it's gonna get worse and it's gonna get nasty and ugly. So because it was a small town when, you know, I had a wreck and there was wine bottles in my car, it's on the front page of the paper. And I guess it was a slow news day because, you know, the local news picked it up. And so, you know, I'm horrified. I don't know why this is happening. Everybody in my family is asking me, why can't you just have a, a glass of Chardonnay like the rest of us and go home and go to bed? 
And, you know, I answered the way all as honest as they can be alcoholics answer, which is, I don't know. I don't know why I can't do that. But it became, you know, something that was part of my reputation. And that's a hard thing to bear when you're, um, you know, in a small town. And as I said, as my drinking went on for six more years, the Bar Association in Georgia was involved. The Bar Association in North Carolina was involved. And it just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. I'm not one of those people that has the good sense to stay home and sip on my liquor and, you know, pass out watching TV. I had to drive somewhere. I had to go somewhere. You know, it was almost like, you know, I'm Jesse James and I'm out there on the street and everybody's, you know, watching me slowly kill myself. My biological father was a lawyer who drank himself to death. Mm. The incidence of alcohol use disorder alcoholism, alcohol addiction among attorneys is higher than the general population. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that, you know, if you're a lawyer and you're in practice, you're, it's a stressful environment for sure. But I also think that if you were to pull, if you could do a poll of every alcoholic in this country, I, I would bet you, and I don't have these statistics, but I would bet you that more, more often than not, serious alcoholics are extremely bright people, extremely talented people, um, extremely charismatic and creative people. And so I think that there's this intersection that happens between, you know, the people that gravitate to law and the people that gravitate to alcohol, because both those things, you know, are brought about by some need within ourselves to find security and peace and comfort. That's at least my experience. You hear all these people talk about CRISPR and the genes splicing, yeah. the genes snipping now. Yeah. And um, there's some, you know, sort of abstract discussion about what do you lose? And I don't know. I mean, we're all speculating because this is an area of science which is evolving. But I'm wondering if we snip those genes, if you're going to lose some of that talent yeah creativity or the x factor the ability to write the x factor so I, I i would i would share that i think you're right about that and furthermore when i first got into recovery i used to hear people share all the time like you know i'm i'm so grateful that i'm an alcoholic and for years and years and years when i would hear that i would think to myself what a crock of shit. Like nobody would wish this on their worst enemy. But now that I've been around for a while and I can understand what that means, because alcoholism drove me, the pain of alcoholism drove me to develop a personal relationship with my higher power, with myself, with you know women that I have you know, spiritual consent with, close relationships. If I didn't have alcoholism, I would have missed all of that. And I'm actually one of the people that can say now I'm very grateful. I'm grateful that I'm an alcoholic in recovery. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It is, um, as they say, simple, but not easy. Um, and, you know, good to go back to your point about lawyers, you know, the first treatment center I went to, um, was Talbot in Atlanta and they serve as doctors and lawyers and pilots and stuff like that. And so, you know, when you, when you get those type of people all in one room, you know, 
you can't ignore that there's some correlation between high functioning people and, you know, more severe cases of alcoholism. Most people, as they say, are not one trick wonders. They don't stumble into the rooms of recovery, <laughs> whether it's through detox, rehab, or a jail cell. Um, they don't they don't come in the first time and go, oh, I've got this. Right. Um, relapse is extremely common. Mm -hmm. It's as, as common as people who have cancer who have another cancer later on. What is it about treatment? What is it about the way we in recovery can approach the person? I mean, I have a dear friend right now, today, this afternoon, is drinking. Last week, he was in the rooms. This afternoon, he's drinking. Yeah. And people in recovery, they could have decades of recovery, and we still kind of throw up our hands. We don't know. Should we be mean? Right. Should we be hugging them? Should we bring bringing soup? You know, we don't know. Should I call him? Should I not call him? Am I nagging? Yeah. We don't know what to do. Um, you're in the professional community now. What, what do we do as family members, as loved ones, as people in recovery, out of recovery? What do we do? How can we support them? I think that the question that you just posed is something that haunts most every person who has a family member or a loved one that struggles in one way or another. I will say this, um, you know, I've been working in the treatment industry since 2009, I sort of accidentally stumbled into this line of work, which by the way, is the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm very grateful for that. One of the things that I really observed that troubled me greatly is people that work in the treatment industry that are in recovery, if they stumble, if they relapse, I've never seen, I've never seen a more harsh reception than those people that I just described going to talk to their supervisor about having a challenge in their recovery. It would seem to me that people that work in this industry would understand that relapse happens and when relapse happens action needs to be taken whether it's more treatment whether it's more therapy whether it's you know modifying some you know part of your lifestyle but what happens is i think because they're afraid that this relapse is going to reflect negatively on their program or their own career or you know whatever whatever the fear is People are really, um, they, they really get people's back turned to them. And one of the things that I decided early on, because I, you know, I don't, I don't work day to day anymore in the treatment business, but when I did and I had a bunch of employees, I just decided I'm not going to do it that way. And if one of my employees comes to me and they're struggling, I can very compassionately and honestly say, I'm here for you. And this is, you know, the plan that I would suggest. And, you know, whether that's them going back to treatment or whatever needs to happen and then give them an opportunity to rectify things and to get back on the beam. Because the people that I've seen had the hard, had, that have had the hardest time coming back to recovery is those people who have, you know, double digit sobriety, like you were talking about. 
And it's not the alcohol that keeps them out of the rooms, it's the shame. And so when my medical condition is in relapse and I am met with well-meaning and supposedly well-educated people with shame, I, I, I can't reconcile that. That doesn't add up to me. And how should you act? I think that you should do exactly what I was just describing. You can compassionately talk to someone, but I always tell families, remember the person that you're talking to, their brain has literally been hijacked by alcohol and other substances. They can't think a good thought if you pay them good money. So what I always suggest to family members is get a plan together, have a conversation with your loved one and move forward with executing that plan and make it be free of judgment or shame. No one is more ashamed of themselves than an alcoholic or an addict who is struggling. Yesterday, this was the text. Hey guys, hope everyone's great. I wanted to make what I'm sure has been quite obvious official by admitting that I relapsed this week. Mm. I'm doing okay, I'm home. We'll speak to each of you individually. Please forgive me for not being my usual responsive self and know how seriously grateful I am to have people as incredible as you guys yeah. supporting me. And I responded, I love you. Yes. You're always welcome, no matter what. And, um, and I want him to know I mean that because yeah. you know, Marsha, people die, yes. people die. Absolutely. And they're dying of shame. That's exactly you right. Know, they're dying in of shame. In that text that you just, it makes me cry because in that text that you just read, you have someone that is apologizing. If this man had diabetes and he texted all his friends to say, I you know, ate a whole chocolate cake last night and my sugar's off the chart. There's no shame in that. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not apologizing for behavior. Do you see what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't Absolutely. feel bad about you know, the way you impacted other people. But as I said, is is the shame is the the shame and the isolation is the murderer. That that's the murderer in this equation. And I've seen it over and over and over and over again. And the way I see it is the way in which, if somebody has twenty years, twenty five years, and they relapse, it's in how they are received yes. in the in the very home group where they spent that 25 years in service. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we say, we give lip service to we don't shoot our wounded. Right. Well, one good way of showing is don't get out the gun and shoot. Yeah. You know, if you, if you really mean that you don't shoot your wounded, then don't shoot your wounded. You welcome them the same as if they had 26, 27, right. 30 years. You welcome them exactly the same. There is no particular status to or or bragging rights to achieving that kind of you know the real and true answer as to why some people survive and some people die is we don't know yeah that's right and and we don't want to hear that right it's scary we, we, we want to accord to them some sort of strength or courage or whatever no absolutely it's baffling to me when i really think about those stories like you're talking about. You know, I mentioned my first husband, the father of my three children, my oldest three kids, and he could not get sober. And he could not get to a place where he was 
strong enough to be honest with himself and honest with the people around him because, you know, like a lot of us, very judgmental family. And, you know, if you work for, you know, some bureaucracy, there's only so many strikes you get before you're out. And I understand that. But, you know, on the other side of all that judgment and all that shame and all that isolation, my oldest three kids' dad jumped off a bridge and killed himself. And the reason he did that is because his mind was telling him that everybody that he had burdened all these years was better off without him. And that is the, that is the great lie of alcoholism. Because I can tell you that my three kids, my oldest kids, they wanted him and they needed him. And it's really sad to me that for whatever reason, that message did not or could not. He, he couldn't hear it. He, you know, he couldn't hear it. There is a distinct overlap between the numbers of overdose deaths and suicides. Yes. And you can watch them and they track. Yes. They track by demographics. They track by rates. They track by raw numbers. And it is the message you exactly, you just said, you don't matter. It doesn't make a difference whether you're right. here or not here. The world does not need you. And so what I'm wondering is so often the suicide prevention message is, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, please don't, you know, call this number mm -hmm. or reach out for help or whatever. And I'm wondering, you know, as a person in recovery who's befuddled, frankly, by this, what is the converse message and how do we communicate the positive end of that message, which is, we need you. We need you. You're important to me. You know, you're still, I, I interviewed an old man here a few years back, and he was a civil rights hero. Mm -hmm. And I went and sat down and heard his story again. And I'm giving that story to his, his widow. And, and she said, I remember the day you came. He said to me, I'm still relevant. Mm. Mm. And he was a hero. He was a hero of the civil rights movement. And he said to his, his wife, I'm still relevant. People still care about me. Yes. And we just can't assume that the fathers, the grandfathers of this country know that, hey, dude, we need you. We need you around. Your grandkids need you. Yeah. You're still relevant. We still need you. And I just don't think that message is getting out. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, the loneliest that I have ever felt in my life was the night that I checked into detox for the last time. Because I wasn't even that intoxicated that night, but I was obviously intoxicated enough to need detox. But I remember clearly laying down on that single bed that was covered, you know, in plastic. I guess, you know, like a hospital bed or whatever. I could just remember myself turning over in my sleep and hearing that noise. And I thought to myself, this is, this is the best I've got, you know? Marcia Stone swinging for the fences every day, trying to be a great wife and a great mom and a great lawyer and a great daughter, doing the very best I can. This is where I always end up. And there's no, there's, I don't think that there's any way I could have felt 
lonelier in that moment. But the, the strange paradigm about recovery, at least in my experience and in, you know, experience with thousands of people that I've talked to and helped over the years, it's almost like that thing has to happen in order for someone to be open to a new way of doing things. Because I think in this country, especially, you know, we're taught, you know, pull up your bootstraps, you know, suck it up, you know, you don't cry and, and all those kind of things. And so, you know, when you get to that point where you feel like an utter failure trying to do it on your own, there's only one thing to do. And that's to try to do it a different way by taking suggestions from people, which is, you know, not in any of our nature. The other thing I was going to say to you is, you know, when you were talking about, you know, that lonely feeling and, you know, how do we how do we do a better job, essentially, of, of communicating with people that they are loved and valued and what their options are. The day the, the day that my ex-husband committed suicide, he called me that morning and I had not talked to him in, I don't know, five or so years at that point. And I could tell that he had been drinking, but he was not drunk. But he wanted to talk to me about, you know, the kids and um, life and plans and, you know, a, a conversation that I never thought I would have had with him. But anyway, at the end of the conversation, he said, he called me Mar. He said, Mar, I haven't done very much right in this world, but we still, we sure do have three beautiful babies, don't we? And I said, yeah, we do, John, and they love you like crazy. And, um... You know, I don't know what made me say that, and I don't know what made him call me, but I'm very grateful, even though I didn't pick up on, you know, that he was suicidal. I didn't pick up on that, and that's haunted me. But it makes me feel really good that the last thing he ever heard about his kids was that they love him like crazy. Because implied in that is you're wanted, you're needed, you're valued, you matter, you're worthy. Yeah, sometimes that message just bounces yeah. off you know i mean sometimes people are so they've shut down they've they've hardened yeah you know yeah and it just doesn't resonate um, yeah i don't know if he called me know, looking for you know some type of reassurance i mean i have no idea he probably didn't know why either he probably just picked up the phone and dialed but um i'm grateful that i did that for him and I'm grateful that I'm able to tell that story to my kids. It's hard to communicate to people who do not see a future. Yes. Um, it's hard to enroll them in a vision that this is this is going to get better. This is really going to change and it's going to get yeah. better. And it's not going to look like your past at all. It's going to look better. There's some things out there you can't imagine. But you're going to have to trust me on yeah. this. And you're going to have to spend some, you know, some time and time out. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have to spend some time and time out. You're not going to bounce right back and go back to the firm and, you know, everybody welcome you with open arms and you're going to be the grand old guy again. Right. No, it's going to take some time. It's exactly like being treated for cancer yep. or any kind of these just pernicious long-term health challenges. Mm -hmm. But we do not treat substance use disorder as a health we, we still regard it as a moral failing. Yes. And that if you, if you get it, 
and you recover, then you're somehow a more courageous or a stronger person. It's not just that, hey, it, it caught this time. I was somehow open to it. And, and I don't know why some people don't make it. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why some people can hear it and some people can't. You know, there's a lot of talk about recovery capital, which in that context, my understanding is that it means, you know, what is the basic foundation that you can reflect back on when your life is in the lowest possible place? You know, did you have a good relationship with your grandparents? Did you, you know, have some sort of experience with higher power through, you know, vacation Bible school after fifth grade? You know, did you grow up in a community where you felt safe and secure? All those things really go into building, um, you know, the groundwork, and they matter a lot in terms of who's going to be able to recover from this thing and who's not. Because if they're, if you're coming from a place of hopelessness, insecurity, trauma, fear, poverty, all those things, that I mean, that that's a setup for difficulty in life to begin with. But then if you add alcoholism on top of that, it almost becomes insurmountable. And so one of the things that I do with people when I'm, you know, whether it's a client, you know, at the at, when I've worked in the treatment center or if it's just someone that I'm, you know, mentoring, I like to talk to people and take them back to, you know, think of the eight-year-old little girl that's sitting beside you right now, you know, in your mind's eye. What does she need? And they'll start to list all things that, you know, that she needs. And from that, we're able to, you know, build a narrative of what, you know, a higher power or a treatment plan or, you know, a life goal. How can we get from where we are now to where you wanted to be back when your brain hadn't been conditioned to think that that was impossible? Because if we can take you back to that place where you're very tethered to spirit, to love, to universe, whatever you want to call it, then we're able to start to build a bridge and, and that's where that that's where I think the, the magic starts to happen. And that's another reason why I'm a big proponent for long-term treatment. I don't think you can get in there and do all the work that needs to be done and, you know, unpack a lifetime of pain and shame um, in, in a few weeks' time. And so if people are willing to devote, you know, the most precious resource that any of us have, which is time, then I say recovery is possible for everyone. It may look a little different. It may not be equally as possible, but it's still possible. You've worked in the criminal justice system. Is there any light bulb going on that you see anywhere to look at criminal justice and the overlap, the incredible overlap with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and the criminal justice mm -hmm. system? Um, is there any you know, epiphany happening that these dollars really, there needs to be some co-occurring long-term treatment mm -hmm. with people whose, whose offenses are, arise directly from their addiction. Well, I'll say this, and I was um, interviewing the other day, the, um, I can't think of her name right now, but she's the head of the, the Rutgers research, research Department on Addiction. I'm like, forgive me, that's not the name of it, but you, you get the gist. 
And anyway, we were talking about this word stigma. And I do think that stigma is slowly, slowly, slowly um, dissipating to some extent. But I don't think that the criminal justice system is ever going to be able to really catch up and and put in place, you know, meaningful solutions. And if it happens in my lifetime, I'll be, you know, thrilled to death. But, you know, even, even really uh, forward-facing um, programs like Drug Court and, you know, um, they had one in Austin where moms go to, to treatment with their little kids instead of losing them to CPS. All these things are interesting, and, and all these things, I think, are motivated. They have their, their motive coming from the right place. But I just think that there's still such a huge disconnect between um, powerlessness and accountability. That that's 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 the rub. And you know, it's interesting. I got you know disbarred in North Carolina and in Georgia. I mean, it sounds so dramatic to say disbarred. It was really just a five-year suspension. But I never went back to get my law license reinstated because I've been you know busy building this healthcare system down in Austin, but I went recently, just like a few weeks ago, to do a keynote for a meeting that they had of the Mid-Atlantic female judges, prosecutors, um, you know, probation officers, everyone that was involved in the criminal justice system from Kentucky and Tennessee and North Carolina, South Carolina, and I think West Virginia too. And I think one of the best ways that I feel like I can personally contribute is to tell these people, you know, what my story is, what I was doing while I was practicing law, why those things were happening. What does recovery look like? You know, what does making, you know, making it all right, paying back all the money, what does that look like? Because one of the questions that I got asked after I spoke is, you know, Marcia, like after all that stuff you shared, Aren't you, you know, a little afraid to walk around downtown Asheville like you're going to run into someone? And I said, I'm not afraid at all. Two reasons. Number one, I've made it right with every single one of these people. Right. And number two. I was doing the best I could every single day. I had a mind that was hijacked, a brain that, you know, was completely misfiring the, you know, the transmitter system, all those things were stacked against me, but I still look like you because that's the other thing I get to. You don't look like a drug addict. What does that look, what do we look like? And so to be able to, you know, put a face with this behavior and then to attach recovery and to really give some meaningful insight on what was helpful in that process which was basically five years on probation, not like legal probation, but probation with the bar associations. And, and to not only talk about the problem, but be able to talk about the solution and the truth, which is alcoholism and addiction is, you know, the great leveler. It does not care how rich you are, how beautiful you are, how educated you are. It doesn't care. Yeah. You used to call it the equal opportunity destroyer. I like that. I've not heard that. I like that. <laughs> what I call the the skid row of the soul, you know, what I, I heard called, and I thought I could not be an alcoholic because I had a necktie. Right. 
because I went to work with a necktie every my day. My thing was I my kids have insurance. Jacket and tie. Like, what alcoholics kids have insurance? You know, it's funny, like, we, we, like, glom onto this little thing. You're wearing a tie, you know. I'm paying my Blue Cross Blue Shield bill. It doesn't matter, you know. That's just, you right, know. Right. I live in a nice house. I pay the mortgage. Yeah, you know? yeah all those or, things. Or in the case of lawyers, my name is on the door. That's right. I wish we could go on all afternoon. I ask everybody the same question. If we get struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survives is this little bit of digital audio, what is your legacy? Mm -hmm. I love that question, first of all. I think my legacy is twofold. The first part of my legacy is how my willingness and how my courage has completely changed the entire structure of my family. And because I fought and fought and fought for my recovery, I believe that my legacy is that of, you know, a strong woman who, who just had a lot of grit, a lot of grit. That's the personal legacy. I think professionally, well, I could say some of the more obvious things like, you know, there's not many female CEOs in the behavioral health space. I don't think there's any other female CEOs that have built a healthcare system um, that, that, you know, has from, from front door to the day you check out, everything all wrapped up into one. I think that I can have... Um, I think that I will be credited with some of that, you know, some of working out all those little, little this and that's that go with a program like that. But more important than that is I think that my legacy will be, I'm a fighter. I fight really hard for what I want and for what I believe in. And along the way, I inspire a lot of people to be better versions of themselves. I have a knack for seeing someone who is incredibly talented and they have no idea that they are and being able to communicate with them, you know, from a place of empathy and from a place of experience of, you know, you can do this. You absolutely can do this. Marsh Stone, I thank you for your time. I honor your work. Aww. It's just a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much. We speak the same language. Yes. And I hope next time I'm up that way, I would love to meet you in person. And thank you so much for reaching out to me. It's been an honor to be on here with you. Marcia Stone has been on A&E's intervention, on Dr. Phil, on the doctors, and she uses her own um, battle with and triumph over addiction in founding BRC Healthcare. She is a world-renowned speaker and we're lucky to have her here today. Marcia, thank you for making time for us. I really appreciate it. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. 
Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. And thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you've done from the very beginning to support Man Listening. I'm really grateful for you. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks.